How many times have you been driving along and you've seen an old house and said, look at that old house. You see an old, old unpainted house and you think, boy, I'd really like to get busy with a paintbrush and take this old Victorian mansion and make it beautiful. I once was able to buy an old car. I found an old 1930 Model A sports roadster, dual wheel well, restored the entire thing, went all the way down to the frame and rebuilt it from the ground up. And I would drive it down the freeways around Pasadena and people would say, look at that old antique. And it was born the same year I was, 1930. I found out by the engine serial number that actually the engine in the car that I owned was, was put together in February of 1930, the year I was born. And they'd say, look at that old man driving that old car. And, uh, you know, I felt like I was an antique where people would honk their horns and wave at me. And, oh, they said, my wife calls them a hoopy car. I don't know where she got that. Look at the old hoopy or the old jalopy. My wife and I once visited the oldest house in the entirety of the United States down at St. Augustine, Florida. And I believe it was built somewhere in the 1500s, don't quote me, but somewhere the earliest Spanish explorers that came ashore down in Florida had built this old house and apparently part of it is still standing. Very, very old. And then I remember in Brickett Wood in England, we would go into the old farmhouse and we would marvel at the beams because they had a distinct curvature to them. It had been standing for more than 400 years, twice as long as this country has been a nation. And the beams were taken from an old English sailing ship and they were still there and visible and the house was actually not quite square because the old beams had this curvature to them. Usually when something is old, we discount it as being well out of date, uh, not modern, not new, certainly. Now in this book, to most Christians, there is a whole segment of it, and that is about, you know, most of it, that is old, very old. It has a title on it. It says right here, if I look at it, it says, The Old Testament. I don't know if you know it or not, but that is not inspired. That is not what Moses labeled what he wrote. When I sit down to my typewriter and write someone a letter, I don't say, this is an old letter. It's the letter that I'm writing, I'm generating right now, so it's brand new. When Moses wrote, it was brand new. And when Ezra and Nehemiah wrote, it was brand new. When Ezra put the finishing touches on what is called the Old Testament canon, and the Jews don't call it that because they don't have any, quote, New Testament in their Bible. They just have what we call, as Christians, the Old Testament, which they call, merely by its authorized title, the Holy Scriptures. That's all they call it. The Jewish Bible begins with Genesis and ends with Second Chronicles. Now, you might think it doesn't include, therefore, all of the prophets. Of course it does, except that they have them in the appropriate order, an order that internal evidence, even in the New Testament, indicates is the correct order of the books of the Bible. You always might have wondered, well, why does First and Second Kings uh, come immediately before, or why do First and Second Chronicles come immediately after First and Second Kings when they're practically, in many cases, duplications of each other? That's because all the writings and the Psalms and the prophets should come in between the Kings and the Chronicles, and the Chronicles correctly should complete the so-called Old Testament. Out here in churchianity, 
There are literally millions and millions of people who believe the Old Testament is done away. The Old Covenant has passed away. It is out of date, it's out of vogue, it is old. And we live in a time of the New Testament. But wait a minute. That old car of mine, that old farmhouse over in England, that old farmhouse was only 400 years of age. What would you think if you possessed an artifact that was over 1,900 years old. I could bring it here and show it to you, and I think I have shown it to some of you before when we had the meeting over in our own office building. I have a little jug that used to sit on a little pedestal in someone's home that no doubt contained vinegar or olive oil or some kind of an oil at the very time when Jesus walked the streets of Jerusalem. It was given to me by Professor Benjamin Mazar, who was the head of the Exploration Society of the Hebrew University, engaged in the big dig at the temple wall. It was unearthed in the strata that is definitely the Herodian period, or King Herod the Great at the time of Jesus Christ, and was used in somebody's kitchen over 1,900 years ago. And I have it over there in my office down here on South Broadway. Very old. Well, what would you say if you possessed a document that was 1,900 years old? Well, Matthew was written in 55 AD. Is that old? And 1 Thessalonians is the very first book, apparently. It sort of vies with Matthew as being the oldest of all the, old te the New Testament writings. Matthew and 1 Thessalonians are both said to have been written at about 55 AD, or about 25 years after the ascension of Jesus Christ. And yet we call it the New Testament. There are millions of people who will look you in the eye and tell you, oh, well, that's all done away. Now, what is done away? Do these people who believe the Old Covenant, the Old Testament is done away, believe that it is perfectly all right, therefore, to murder your neighbor? Well, of course not. Well, do they believe it is all right to commit adultery with their neighbor's wife? Well, of course not. Do they believe it is all right to steal? No. To dishonor, disrespect their parents? No. Well, what about to simply bow down before an idol? Well, no. Baptists, Methodists, Episcopalians, even though some churches have excuses about their icons and their idols and they don't call them that, uh, nevertheless, they really don't believe in idolatry. If you took it commandment by commandment through the Ten Commandments, where all the controversy really is, and you were to ask them, which one of the Ten Commandments is it that is so evil, that is so bad, that you would not want to see applied in this modern 20th century space age? The only one they really feel has been altered or tampered or somehow changed is the fourth, the Seventh-day Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath, the Shabbat, to keep it holy. But they say the law has been done away. If you will turn to Genesis, the 17th chapter, you will see the very origin in the Bible of the covenant. Now, if you want a dictionary definition, and I took the pains to look this up right quickly, although I know it by heart, and I'm sure you do as well, I'll merely read it to you. A covenant is a solemn agreement between two or more persons or groups to do or not to do a certain thing. 
So a covenant to do a certain thing is a covenant, an agreement. But the thing that you are to do is not the covenant, is it? The covenant is the agreement. That's the handshake. That's the document with the signature on the dotted line. Abraham was given a covenant. When Abraham was 90, or Abram, his name had not yet been changed, was 99, the Eternal appeared to Abram, or Abram, and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me, and be thou perfect, and I will make my covenant between me and thee, and will it will multiply you exceedingly. He promised, I will make you a father of many nations. That was his covenant with him, a part of the agreement, of the promise. And your name will not be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, because it means a father of many nations. For I have made you a father of many nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations, plural, of thee, and kings, plural, shall come out of thee. All of this is covered in great detail in my book entitled Europe and America in Prophecy. But I will establish my covenant, that's an agreement, between me and thee, and thy seed after thee, in their, that's plural, multiple, generations, for an everlasting covenant. Now, how long was the covenant to last? Well, only so long as uh, God decided to keep it in vogue, right? Or, or for a certain dispensation, correct? Or for a certain era or period of time or until a certain period of time. No, it says here, everlasting. Now, everlasting means, technically, in the Hebrew, so long as the conditions continue to obtain. That is, so long as both parties are there. Now, since God promised that Abraham was to have perennial or perpetual seed, and never would David fail to have seed sitting on the throne that was his throne guaranteed in the Davidic covenant to belong to him in perpetuity out to all eternity, which throne Christ is to come to possess, and since God still exists, and the children of Israel still exist, then the conditions still obtain, and the covenant is therefore perpetual, everlasting. To be a God unto thee, and to thy seed after thee, and I will give unto you and to your seed after you the land wherein you are a stranger. So this covenant, this agreement, had certain strings attached. It was a conditional covenant, and the condition was Walk before me, and be thou perfect, and if you do, I will give you the possession of this land. Now, it's repeated time and again to Isaac, to Jacob. Let's go now quickly to Exodus, the second chapter. God looks down and begins to see the terrible suffering of the people of Israel, and in the 24th verse of Exodus, the second chapter, at the end of that chapter, it says, And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. I won't take time to read all the repetitive explanations of that covenant and the agreement of those individuals with God, the renewal of that covenant. But I do want to read to you the renewal of that covenant with the massive seed, the entire generation of Jacob's children, and Jacob's name was changed to Israel, who are therefore always known as the children of Israel, the boys and girls that came from Jacob, and God renewed that covenant with them, and they renewed their intention to keep it with him. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Now let's turn to Exodus 15 and verse 26. 
and look at some of this language. Exodus 15 and verse 26. He said, if you will diligently hearken to the voice of the eternal your God and will do that which is right in his sight and will give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon you which I have brought upon the Egyptians. Now that's conditional. If you will do thus and such, I will do so and so. If you will keep my commandments, keep my statutes, then I will not allow you to be cursed or plagued with these horrible diseases that have blighted Egypt. I am the eternal and healeth thee. Actually, the Hebrew is I am Yahweh Rophika, or Jehovah Rophika, God who heals, the eternal who heals you. Notice in verse 4 of the next chapter, he said, I'm going to rain bread from heaven, and the people shall go out and gather a certain rate every day, and they were to gather a double rate on Friday, as we call it today, which is a misnomer, but the sixth day, that I may, I may test them or prove them whether they will walk in my law or not. Now, I've given you a sermon or several of them in the past, and I think all of you know that there are easy proofs obtainable in the Bible if you simply exclude everything from Exodus 20 to the end of the Bible and you deal only with Genesis 1 through Exodus 19, and that is your text, you can demonstrate that each one of the Ten Commandments were in full force and that the penalty for breaking them was death long prior to the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. What else can you demonstrate from God's laws, statutes, or judgments as having been in full force and effect long prior, by centuries, because one full sixth of all of history transpired during the lifetime of the patriarchs, Adam to Methuselah, until now, when you stop to think about that. See, we've only gone about not quite the end of 6,000 years, but more than 1,000 years transpired to the flood of Noah, one sixth of all of history. Well, you might think of the flood of Noah and remember that Noah was commanded to take seven pair of the clean animals, correct? And that there were the unclean animals and there were the clean animals and that he was not to eat of the unclean. They were unclean and unfit for him. Had anybody been named Levi? Levi was not, as we used to say in the vernacular, the gleam in his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather's eye. Levi was way down in history yet as one of the children of Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, and Abraham was not to be born for centuries yet. Yet we read in the Bible of the clean and the unclean, don't we? We actually read of sacrifices in the account of Cain and Abel, and that those who were godly and understood the need for the shedding of blood as an atonement for sin, as a perpetual sign of the need for a savior, would sacrifice a clean animal. We see that Noah did that after the floodwaters receded. What else do we see? We see tithing during the time of Abraham when he went out and subdued the kings and gave a tenth to the one, the giving of the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments at Sinai. Now, what you're reading of here is that God is testing them with regard to a specific one of the commandments. Which one? The fourth one. It was the only one 
that he tested them on. There was no test given at the foot of Sinai on coveting. There was no test given specifically by tempting them with an idol or something. There was no test other than the fourth. The fourth was always the great tester, the test commandment. So he said they were to go out and gather a certain rate every day that I may prove them, Exodus 16, before Exodus 20, when you first read in the Bible of the Decalogue, whether they will walk in my law or not. If you look at Genesis 13, 13, it says that the men of Sodom were sinners exceedingly before the eternal. And what is the biblical definition of sin? You all know by heart, surely, 1 John 3, 4. Sin is the transgression of the law. And where no law is, there is no transgression, said Paul in the book of Romans. So therefore, if the men of Sodom were sinners, there had to be a law which was in force and which was being broken for them to be sinners. And what was the penalty? Well, Almighty God destroyed the entire city in the equivalent of a thermonuclear fire. Perhaps he did use the very elements that man has learned to unlock in an atomic or a hydrogen explosion because the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were burnt to cinders by the wrath of God, showing his judgment upon that heinous sin. Sin existed because a law existed which was being broken, and what was the punishment for sin? Death by fire. But there are millions out here in our land who don't have the faintest conception of what I'm telling you here today, which to many of you is like grade school, I should assume. You have been through this so many times, you perhaps know many of these scriptures by heart. Let's go a little further to Exodus, the 16th chapter and verse 28. The Eternal said unto Moses, how long, and he's saying through Moses to the people, not to Moses specifically, refuse ye to keep my commandments and my laws. See, for that the Eternal has given you the Sabbath, therefore he gives you on the sixth day the bread of two days, Abide you every man in his place, let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Was the seventh day in vogue, in force and effect? Well, then finally we come to the law two chapters later, at the giving the law foot of Mount Sinai, and the commandment, sure enough, does not say, I hereby designate the Sabbath day as holy. Oh no, you read of that back in Genesis 2. In Genesis, the second chapter in creation week. For God rested on the seventh day, wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it, set it aside as absolutely sacred and holy, and said no work should be done in that day, it is holy to the eternal. So in the Decalogue, chapter 20 and verse 8 of the book of Exodus, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Notice Exodus 19, verses 4 to 8, however just prior to the giving of that law. God reminded them, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bear you on eagles' wings. And remember that when it says in the book of Revelation in the 12th chapter and talks about the eagles' wings symbolically given to the woman to fly or to flee into the wilderness, that you have this reference in Exodus 19 and verse 4, they walked every step of the way. But because God Almighty protected them from Pharaoh and his armies, he fed them, he rained food from heaven, he gave them water that was at first poisonous, but then it was cleansed by the throwing into the branch, and he provided miracle after miracle. Symbolically, 
He says, I bore you on eagles' wings. I once heard a sermonette given. Someone was taking this scripture and doing some research on it, and sure enough, they found out that apparently when the little eaglets are just really uh, fletching out and beginning to get their feathers on them and are learning to fly, that when they first are up in their high aerie, and I've seen eagles' nests in Colorado, way up in some cleft of a rock several hundred feet above a valley floor, the mother eagle will actually take the youngsters on her back, maybe one at a time, and swoop out of the nest and drop them. They'd be fluttering away and not really quite flying, but just sort of halfway falling, and she will swoop down and pick them up on her back again. I've never seen that, but they say it is done, and that's the way the eagles teach their young to fly. God uses that analogy merely as God's protection. How I bear you on eagle's wings and brought you unto myself. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, keep this agreement, do your part of it, then you shall be a peculiar treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. I own everything. And you shall be unto me a nation or a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. There's the reward. If you will obey, this is what's going to happen for you. Moses came and called all the elders of the people and laid before their faces all these words which the Eternal had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Eternal has spoken, we will do. If you want a scripture to remember, it is Exodus 19.8. That is where the people of Israel agreed to the terms and conditions of what is called the Old Covenant. Now, God characterizes the Old Covenant, as we will see in a moment, as being exactly like a young man proposing to a young woman. Take a look now at Deuteronomy 5 and verse 29. There's a great deal in Deuteronomy that is repetitious because it is merely the orations and very repetitious of the book of Exodus and some of the other books of the Torah. But in verse 29, God is saying, Oh, that there were such an heart in them, that is the attitude and the nature of mine, that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. Now, without reading all of this, go to Deuteronomy 28 right quickly and just take a look at some of the blessings, and I'll just skim along because many of you are quite familiar with this, but if you want to look at some of the terms and conditions of the covenant, here they are. Verse 1, it shall come to pass, if you shall hearken diligently to the voice of the eternal your God to observe and do all of his commandments, which I command you this day. At first blush, because we tend to be independent people, we are Americans, we are a protesting society because, by and large, we are Protestant as opposed to universal or Catholic. And, of course, if you understand British history, you understand that without the breakaway from Mother Rome, there would never have been a Church of England of which the royal family of England have always been the titular heads. That the Queen is today the head of the Anglican Church or the Church of England, and the Archbishop of Canterbury, although he is sort of the functional head, is nevertheless not the actual head of the church. The Queen of England, or the monarch of England, is at all times the head of that church. So church and state are not really separate in the same sense that they are in the United States. We have our antenna cranked out so far that every time we in this country perceive, and sometimes it's carried to ludicrous extremes in public school systems, 
and having to do with the display of the flag and having to do with certain demonstrations and so on, uh, if we perceive that there is any commingling or intermingling of church and state, we become very upset about that because we want it to be completely separate. Not so in most, most nations. That's not so in all of the nations of the Orient. Uh, basically, the head of state traditionally down through history in most of the nations of the world, especially in the Far East and Middle East, have been the head of the church, the religious figure. Look at the Imam Khomeini and his successor. Same comment. You could look all over the Arab world, and that happens to be a true statement. So Almighty God is saying that if you will observe and do his commandments, which I command you this day, and those commandments are almost always taken for granted by the average rebellious protesting American to be harsh, to be bondage, to be like a kind of a psychological imprisonment. They are unwanted. They are threatening. It's like we drive along the street, and you might investigate your own mind and say, oh, look out, slow down, there's a cop. We are that way by nature. We're looking around in the rearview mirror. When we see, as we call them, a cop, we've shortened constable of the peace. And I guess they did that way back in old England because that's what it really meant. And we call them the short, you know, cop. So when we see one, we look to see, uh-oh, is my seatbelt fastened? Because I might not have paid that much attention to it before I see this cop. If he's right in my rearview mirror right behind me, I'm looking at my speedometer because I want to make sure I'm obeying the law. And then I begin to resent his presence, right? I'm a little suspicious of it. Why is he on my bumper? Why is he right behind me? What about my inspection sticker? What about my license plate? Is he looking me over to see if there's something wrong with me that he can arrest me for? We are Americans, and I think I'm touching a nerve. I think you know what I'm talking about. We generally tend to be suspicious and resentful of authority. Germans are the other way around. They like authority. Many people in Eastern Europe and other nations want a certain amount of authority to bring order, but we are different. The Israelites of history were different. They were hard-hearted and stiff-necked. They were resentful and suspicious of authority. So they never understood that the commandments of Almighty God are for our good, which is why in my book with the Ten Commandments I take so much time to wade through what would happen if even one of the Ten Commandments were obeyed by the entire country, such as the commandment against stealing. It would be a multi-trillion dollar lifting of a burden upon the back of the United States, and at once we could empty all of our prisons and jails, and we could get rid of an awful lot of police and county and state and federal and private agencies, and so on and so on. And he says, all these blessings, verse 2, shall come on thee and overtake you, if you shall hearken to the voice of the Eternal your God. I won't read them all, but you can just ask, are we blessed in the cities? And think about any city you know, from Baltimore to Washington, D.C., the murder capital of the world, to Dallas-Fort Worth, to Houston, to Tyler, Texas. Blessed shall you be in the field. That's crops. That implies good weather, bounteous crops, etc. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body. No more deformities, no thalidomide babies, no deaf, no dumb, no blind. Uh, no children that are born with AIDS and with some kind of congenital disease or deformity. 
the fruit of your ground, the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your kind, the flocks of your sheep. Blessed shall be your national reserves, meaning oil reserves and minerals like perhaps molybdenum and chromium and, and all kinds of uh, the raw materials like tin and iron and so on. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. And the eternal shall cause your enemies that rise up against you to be smitten before your face. He will command the blessing upon you in your storehouses, verse 8. Everything you set your hand to do, God will bless you. He will establish you as a holy people. But he goes on to say a little later on, but if you do not obey all of these, he says, verse 15, then in verse 16, cursed you will be in the city, etc. I won't read them all. Cursed will be your, your children, the fruit of your body, your flocks. And he will send cursing, verse 20, and vexation, rebuke, and all that you set your hand to do. So the terms and conditions of the covenant were very simple. Let's turn to the 31st chapter of the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, the 31st chapter. And we will see that God says... There is coming a new covenant, a new agreement, a different agreement. Now, what was the agreement God made with Abraham? Walk before me, live according to my laws, be perfect, and I will bless you with long life, good health, happy, fruitful, productive children, successful in business or with your herds or whatever, and all of those material blessings you could begin to imagine. And that's the whole point. All the blessings were material. They were to be experienced during a physical lifetime. They were the blessings of a large family. They were in perpetuity, and so long as members of that family continued to obey God, those blessings would be theirs. Abraham finally was told that God had made that covenant with Abraham unconditional when God tested Abraham to the point of telling him to sacrifice his own son, in which Abraham is like a type of God the Father who had to be willing to allow his own son, Jesus Christ, to shed his life's blood for the sins of the world. Later on, Almighty God, time and again, was reminded once by Moses when God had said he was going to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. And Moses said, what will the Gentiles say? And what about your promise and your covenant? And as we said, as we read there in the second chapter of Exodus, then God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And time and again, God has said to a person who deserved nothing but death, I will not do thus and such because of my covenant with my servant Abraham, and because I promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob all of these great blessings in perpetuity, even though they were denied for 2,520 years. Now, in verse 31 of the 31st chapter of Jeremiah, Behold, the days come, says the Eternal, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Judah, or Israel, and with the house of Judah. To Baptists, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, people of all of the Western world of Protestantism and Christianity, that means the new covenant had nothing to do with the Ten Commandments. It had nothing to do with the laws involving tithing or clean and unclean. Basically, most people believe that nothing from the end of Malachi to the first of Genesis is in any way applicable or binding upon any Christian today at all. If you want to read it, their attitude is, well, it's Jewish history. 
Uh, it's music and literature. It's poetry. You can take it with a grain of salt. Uh, many of them, I think, do not really believe it. A lot of pastors in pulpits do not believe it. Many of them do not give a real account of creation of Genesis 1 and 2, but want to believe in evolution and creation, meaning that God allowed man to evolve, and perhaps the first man that ever stood up way back when, in the days of Neanderthal or Cro-Magnon or whatever, were the Adam of their time. And they would like to sort of harmonize evolution and creation, but they really basically don't believe it. And the average Sunday-keeping person in a Sunday-keeping church has that excuse programmed into his mind just drummed into his head by his family, by his church, by his background. They will look you in the eye, blissfully ignorant of the Bible, knowing nothing about a single scripture we're studying here today, and tell you, oh, but that's Old Covenant. That's the Old Testament, and it is all done away. That's what they think. Behold, the days come, says the Eternal, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. We read about that covenant and how they said, all that you have spoken, we will do. They agreed to it. Which my covenant, they break. Oh, then they broke their part of the agreement. Now, does that nullify the law, which was what the agreement was all about? Does the fact that the Israelites broke God's law, destroy God's law? Does it abrogate God's law, just erase it from the tables of stone and remove it from history so that it's no longer applicable to us? It says, that covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the eternal. Interesting analogy. You know, it is not man that invented the familial relationships that we see throughout the Bible. We see church brethren as siblings. We see God as our Father, Christ as the firstborn son and the firstborn among many brethren. Wherefore, he is not ashamed, the Bible says, to call them brethren. And we're called brothers and sisters. These are family relationships. Now, when a young husband, would-be husband, say suitor at this case, proposes to a young girl, in the classic meaning of that word, in a society where they don't just, as they say, shack up, meaning get in some shack and stay there together, get an apartment and live together, or live in, which is done by millions today. But in an honorable and a decent society, a society of law, a young man proposes to a young lady, and he says to her that he loves her, that he honors her, he respects her, he admires her. He wants nothing so much but to be with her, to live with her, to become her husband. He proposes to her and says, if you will marry me, I will be your provider. I will work myself to death. I will sweat and strain. I will struggle to succeed. I will provide a home. I will provide your clothing, your food. I will protect you, I will care for you when you are sick and ill, I will be with you through thick and thin, no matter what, 
and I will be your provider, protector, your lover, your husband, and I will be faithful to you and you alone. I won't go next door to the neighbor's wife. I won't have any mistresses around here and there. I will have you alone as my lover, my companion, and my friend. If you will agree with me to do the same for me. If you will say, if you marry me, that you will be faithful to me. You won't entertain the postman while I'm gone to work. You won't invite the milkman in. You won't sleep around on me. Uh, you will not divorce me. You won't run off and leave me with somebody else. But you will be faithful to me all of your life long. Now, Almighty God proposed to Israel. There's an analogy in the Bible about how he discovered a little baby discarded and bleeding. And actually, with the blood stains of its birth, which was illegitimate, and picked up that tiny child, Ezekiel wrote of that analogy, and washed it and salted it, as it says, and oiled the little child, and protected it, and put it in beautiful, soft, cuddly clothing and blankets. And it grew up to be a young, beautiful girl. And he gives the analogy of how when she blossomed out to become a young woman past the age of puberty, that she became infatuated with her beauty. And suddenly she went out and went whoring around with all of the young men in the neighborhood and the community. And no longer was she faithful to this person who had actually nurtured her from childhood. And God gives that analogy of Israel. So it is God's analogy, not mine, that he said, I was an husband unto them. It was like a marriage relationship. And Israel is called my wife. And both the Old and the New Testament give analogies in the writing of the Apostle Paul, for example, about how he gave Israel a, quote, bill of divorcement, end quote, because the only grounds for divorcement were unfaithfulness contained in the Greek word in the New Testament, porneia, when Israel was committing adultery politically, in this case, by analogy, against God, her only husband. So who was at fault? Israel, in breaking God's law, turning to idolatry, abandoning the Sabbath, forgetting his annual holy days, bowing down before idols, and even sacrificing their own children to pagan gods. Which covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Eternal. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. Question. Since all of churchianity out here thinks that the new covenant is made with the church, are they right? What does the Bible say? Do you think the new covenant is made with Christians? Do you think the new covenant was a covenant between God and Christians? Well, if you do, you don't know your Bible very well. The Apostle Paul says salvation is of the Jews. And his analogy is all the way from the 5th through the 11th chapters of the book of Romans when he is talking about the grafting in of the Gentiles to the natural vine, which is Israel. And his statement in Galatians 3.29, If ye be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And when he talks in the prophecies of Isaiah about the regathering of Israel, even in the 30th chapter of Jeremiah about the restoration of Israel in the preceding chapter before this one right here, of how the restoration of Israel is predicted, foretold. He calls Israel, quote, Israel, mine elect, and the work of my hands, end quote. 
And he talks about Judah and Israel becoming one stick in his hand and talks about the restoration of the Jews. So at all times, the new covenant is made with Israel first and to the Gentiles and others secondly and only as they are grafted in, spiritually speaking, to become spiritually the seed of Abraham. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. Does not say the Gentiles. After those days, says the Eternal, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. What will he write in their hearts? My law. At what time in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation does Almighty God, speaking through his prophet, indicate when he says, my law, something other than the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and in the broadest sense, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, which are called the law. It always means God's Ten Commandments, his law. Write it in their hearts, their inward parts, and their minds, and he will be their God, and they will be his people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord with their false religions, which is going on today. Isn't that the message? Isn't that exactly what you see when you flip around on Sunday morning television? And they're praying and crying and holding hands and squinching their eyes up and talking about how nice it is to know the Lord? How long have you known the Lord? Do you know the Lord? Do you walk with the Lord? Do you talk with the Lord? It's so nice to know the Lord. Know the Lord, brother. Let me tell you about the Lord. Let me tell you about my experiences with Jesus. They say, know the Lord. They shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, says the Eternal, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their, will remember their sin no more. What is sin? The transgression of God's Ten Commandments. That new covenant is described in the book of Hebrews in great detail. If we will turn to the book of Hebrews right quickly, I want to show you, first of all, in the eighth chapter and beginning in verse eight. Hebrews eight and verse eight. Again, we will see here that the fault was not in God's law. There was no flaw in the commandment, no flaw in the law of, all, of, of God at all, but a flaw in the people and the fact that they did not observe that law. He says, beginning in verse 7 of the 8th chapter of Hebrews, if that first covenant had been faultless. Now, what was the fault? There was something at fault here with that first covenant. Then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith. So the fault was not with the covenant. Now, again, what is a covenant? The covenant is not the law. The covenant is an agreement to keep the law. If I'm holding in my hands the law, and you and I are standing there, and I'm saying, will you agree with me that you're going to keep this law? And you say, yes, I will. Let's shake on it. We shake hands. Our handshake and our verbal agreement is the covenant. This isn't the covenant. This is what we agree to keep. If I make a covenant with you that you can rent my truck for $10 a day and we shake on it, the truck's not the covenant. The agreement, you can rent it for $10 a day, is the covenant. And if you default and don't pay me, my truck's still sitting there. My truck still exists because you default and you don't pay me what you promised doesn't mean my truck just poof, disappears into thin air. 
any more than the fact that the Ten Commandments disappeared into thin air because people broke those commandments. So finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, says the Lord, and here the Apostle Paul is quoting. To whom? To the Jews, the Hebrews. From what? What people call the Old Testament. One-third, approximately 33 and a third percent, of the New Testament is quotation from the Old Testament. Jesus Christ of Nazareth said, search the scriptures. To what could he possibly have referred in 30, 29, 30, 31 AD when he said to the Jews, search the scriptures for they testify of me. What scriptures did they possess when archaeology and history absolutely demonstrates not one scrap of this book that we're reading, nor any other part of what we call the New Testament, could have been written and put down to vellum or papyrus or paper and ink or any other writing material prior to 55 A.D., many, many years after the ascension of Christ. Christ said, search the scriptures. The only scriptures that he's talking about are what we call the Old Testament. And Christ liberally and freely quoted from them. He goes into the synagogue. They delivered him the scroll of Isaiah. He said, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. It was scripture, he said. The apostle Peter was talking about how some of Paul's letters are hard to be understood, with the unlearned and the unstable rest or twist as they do the other scriptures. And he didn't mean other writings of John or of Peter, but he said the other writings, and he meant the Old Testament. The only scriptures that they had during Jesus' day and for generations thereafter, because it was not for generations that some of the writings of the early apostles and their students or others who came along later, and perhaps Polycarp did have some little bit to do with the collecting of the canon, I really don't know. But nevertheless, it was many, many years until this that we're reading here became canonized and became recognized by generally all of those who called themselves Christians as being holy writ and on a par with what had always been acknowledged to be scripture, which is the Old Testament. So he said he would make a new covenant with the house of Judah and the house of Israel, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand, leading them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, they broke the covenant, and I regarded them not, says the Eternal. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And then he quotes the entire thing that we read. They won't teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and to their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Now notice verse 13, very important. Paul is writing to the Hebrews probably in the late 50s A.D. And he says, in that he saith, a new covenant he made, he has made the first old. Now that which decays and waxes old is ready to vanish away. Only when you understand the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that the blood of bulls and goats can never atone for sin, that the old covenant was a, a physical agreement, an agreement to do physical things, to observe the law in the letter of the law, 
in return for physical promises for the duration of a physical life and understand that the New Testament or the New Covenant is based upon spiritual performance and carries with it spiritual rewards, living according to God's law in the spirit rather than in the letter. Do you get the picture of how it is written in our hearts and our minds rather than in the fleshly tables of our bodies? I don't have time to go back through the entire subject of circumcision, of how Abraham, when he was 99, was commanded to be circumcised, and how God said, this is the token in your flesh of my covenant between you and me, of the strange account when Zephyrah, or Zephyrah if you, if you prefer, was met by an angel when Moses took his wife and was about to enter back into Egypt to deliver the children of Israel out of the hand of Pharaoh. And it said that that divine messenger sought to kill him. And Zipporah took a flint, which would be like a knife, razor sharp, and performed the rite of circumcision on Moses' son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, You are a bloody husband unto me, because Almighty God was not going to allow Moses, nor Moses' son, to enter into that land as the one who was the actual emissary of that covenant without the sign of that covenant in his flesh. If you want to study Jeremiah 4.4, and I won't turn to that and read it, you will see the analogy there of the difference between flesh and spirit. He said, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my laws, at the Ten Commandments, including the Fourth Commandment, into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. He will be merciful and never remember again their unrighteousness and their sin, which is the breaking of God's Ten Commandments. Now, chapter 9, I won't read it all, but you ought to read it if you want to understand it, because it is about the, as it says right here, superiority of the spiritual sacrifice of Christ over the physical sacrifice of the temple service, the superiority over the spiritual observing of God's law in the spirit as opposed to the physical observance of God's law in the letter. And he cites the case of the shadowy meanings of the Day of Atonement and how Jesus Christ of Nazareth is a high priest of a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood entering into heaven for the propitiation of sin for all time. I want to turn back to the book of Matthew right quickly and look at Matthew 5 and verse 17. Did Jesus Christ of Nazareth consistently uphold God's law? He said in verse 17 to Matthew 5, Think not that I'm come to destroy the law. But these people out here will tell you God came in the form of Jesus Christ of Nazareth to nail the law to the cross. He came to destroy the law to abrogate the law, to rescind the law, any, any adjective you wish to use. He came to do away with the law. That's the most common one that they use. So the law is not applicable. It's not binding on us today. Christ said, think not, I'm come to destroy the law. They all think he did. Or the prophets. They all think that they're of no use, no value, that they're not for us today. Very few people pay any attention to the Old Testament prophets. Some of them think that perhaps the book of Revelation has some efficacy, or perhaps the book of Daniel, but not that many people pay that much attention to Ezekiel, Jeremiah, some of the minor prophets such as Hosea and Amos and so on. 
I am not come to destroy, but to do or to perform. When you fulfill an obligation, you don't eradicate the obligation. You fulfill the obligation. You do it. You perform it. If you agree to the obligation to mow your neighbor's yard for one month, by the end of the month, you're still mowing the yard. You don't neglect to mow the yard. You do it or you perform it. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass. Has heaven and earth passed? No. Not one jot or one tittle, meaning one comma, one period, one crossing of a T or dotting of an I, shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Is heaven out there? Is the earth here? Has the law been fulfilled or done away? No. Not according to Jesus Christ, right in the Sermon on the Mount. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments. And which is the very least? Well, I suppose some people would say here that it has to do with maybe reconciliation to your brother. Maybe it has to do with leaving a gift at the altar and going and being reconciled before you come back. Maybe it has to do with, with lusting or with coveting or with swearing. He says in verse 34, swear not at all. Is that the one you think is the least? Whichever one you think is the least, if you break that and teach men it's okay to break it, it says you will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And it doesn't say you will be there. It seems to imply that those who are there will speak of you as being least because there's no way that you can defy what Christ says and disdain his commandments and his laws and then gain the kingdom of God. But whosoever shall do and teach them, not only perform them in the spirit, but teach others both by example and by literal preaching and teaching to do and perform God's laws, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. How many Methodists, Baptists, Episcopalians, Church of Christ, Congregationalists, people all over the spectrum of churchianity, of Protestant so-called Christianity, believe that by doing, performing, and teaching the commandments of God, you will eventually be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Is the fourth commandment one of God's commandments? Well, of course it is. And there's plenty of evidence in the New Testament that it must be kept. There's a great deal more about God's law, but let me give you just a quick few to think about. Matthew 19, 17, scripture that I've used over the years, which is simply impossible to reason around. A young man came and said, Good master, verse 16, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? You talk about an opportunity on one of these televangelist programs, like a call-in or somebody that comes up to a preacher, somebody that walks up the aisle after an evangelistic campaign, or somebody that comes to some man who's handing out tracts along the street and merely says, What can I do to be saved? What a wonderful opportunity. And what are most of them going to say? Do? Oh. I wish you hadn't used that word, young man. That, that, that word, do. Now, automatically, that connotes the word do, meaning physical works, meaning that you must do something. Young man, all you need to do is stand where you are. You don't need to do a thing, but you need to accept Jesus, receive Jesus, confess that you are a sinner, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Take Jesus to be your Savior, appropriate Jesus, receive Jesus, and you shall be saved. And that's what they say. In their tens of thousands, they say it. By the hundreds of thousands of hours, they say it. By the thousands of pounds of written material, they preach it and teach it. You do not need to do anything. 
just believe and be saved. Jesus said, why do you call me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if you will enter into life, keep the commandments. Now it's argument time, and here the Protestants will argue with you, because Jesus said, in response to the question, which? Well, now, wait a minute. Let's see what he omitted. They want to argue. Well, you should do no murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, then it's perfectly all right, according to Jesus Christ, to have another God before you, correct? Do you believe he meant that? He doesn't list that one, does he? Isn't it perfectly all right, according to Christ, according to someone that wants to argue? Because the fourth is missing, isn't it? But so is the first, and so is the second, isn't it? And so are several more of the Ten Commandments missing. Which commandments is he talking about when he said, which? And then he gives him several examples out of the last six, which are how to love your neighbor, and omits any mention of the first four, basically, about how to love God. Is there anyone in his right mind who believes that by this statement, Jesus is abrogating the first four commandments out of God's law and saying, ignore that and go into witchcraft, Satanism, idolatry, bow down to idols, uh, ignore the Sabbath day, uh, make yourselves an idol, have other gods before the true God, it doesn't matter. But if you obey these, you can have eternal life. No, by no stretch of the imagination, and of course his entire life was dedicated not only to preaching and teaching the Ten Commandments of God and lifting them to a spiritual plane, but setting us an example that we should follow in his step by observing the Ten Commandments in the Spirit. The young man then said he had kept these from his youth, and he said, if you will be perfect, go and sell all that you have and follow me, and offered him an apostleship. And the young man, of course, was very sorrowful. Turn to Romans, the seventh chapter, right quickly. I'll give you just a few more, and then I'll quit here. Romans, the seventh chapter. The Apostle Paul says in verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Good question. He anticipates that there are people in society who will actually tell you in a satanic twisting of Scripture that not only is the law not good and shouldn't be kept, but it's bad. And believe me, I've run across many of them. I've read booklets and religious paraphernalia and tracts by the score that will tell you God's law is bad for you. That about the worst thing you can get involved in is all this legalism, they like to label it, of thinking you've got to do something like keep the Sabbath, go and attend God's holy days. That's so, so rigorous, that's so bone-crushing, that is just such a great mountainous burden of of woe and of drudgery and dreary law-keeping. Oh, they wax so eloquent in their hatred and their contempt toward God's law. Paul says, is the law sin? God forbid. No. And then he shows you what the law is all about. I would not have known sin, but by the law, for I had not known lust. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? Because lust is a state of mind. I mean, you can read a stop sign. You can know it's wrong to go down here and tamper with the vault of the bank. You know it's wrong to get in your neighbor's car and try to wire it and drive it away and steal it. You know it's wrong to take a butcher knife and try to kill your dear grandmother. Of course you do. 
And all societies generally agree that those are wrong, rotten, evil, bad things to do. But I mean, just to walk along and see a store window full of things you don't need, shouldn't have, can't afford, and lust after them, how would you ever know that's a sin, Paul says, except the law had said, you shall not covet. So the law does what? It merely defines what is sin and what is righteousness. The law is positive. Honor your father and your mother. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That's not a restrictive law, don't do something. It's a, a law that says do do something on the positive side. In verse, seven, uh, verse 12, Wherefore, the law, we're talking about the Ten Commandments, and it's absolutely incontrovertible in the internal evidence of this verse. The law is holy. New Testament writing, isn't it? Book of Romans, written perhaps toward the end of his imprisonment and near his death, probably around 59 to 61 A.D. Christ was crucified, buried, and then ascended to heaven in approximately about June 18th of 31 A.D. That's approximate. I don't have to say that that's dogmatic, but that's pretty close. This is 61, approximately. 30 years after everything that had been allegedly nailed to the cross had been nailed there, and Paul is, tell, is telling Gentile Christians in the city of Rome, the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Verse 14. We know the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. In verse 22, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. And he talks about the other law of sin and death in our members, our physical flesh. Continually, Almighty God's law is upheld by the Apostle Paul and by Jesus Christ himself, by Peter and by all the others. The Old Covenant is not the Ten Commandments of God. The Old Covenant was an agreement by the Israelites to observe all of the tenets of the Ten Commandments and the statutes and the judgments. And if they observed them, as we have seen, God promised to give them all those fabulous blessings. And what we don't seem to understand is it really does not have to do with a voluntary act on God's part, because God has set laws in motion that are so inexorable that you receive an automatic benefit if you obey his laws. You stop to think about it by analogy. If I wanted to design as an aeronautical engineer a beautiful airplane, I'd be advised to go out here and study the birds and design something that looked a little bit like a bird. And what have men done? I would not design something that looked like a brick, or like just a chunk of rock, because it wouldn't fly. Why? Well, because there are laws involving the movement of objects through air, which overcomes drag by creating lift and a certain amount of propulsion and so on. And whether you're talking about the laws of chemistry, of physics, of science, or any of the natural laws, man learns how to get in harmony with those laws and therefore lives at peace, in health, and in tranquility. We know there are laws of health, laws of our mind that pr produce sound minds and good mental health. Laws of diet and exercise that produce a strong heart and a good circulatory system and good sleep and so on, good health and long life, therefore. And so there are laws involving abstaining from all kinds of pre- and post-marital sex 
And if a people, if people would obey those laws, we wouldn't have gonorrhea, syphilis. Uh, what are some of them? The uh, one like a big cold sore that, that comes herpes, which is apparently for life. AIDS, on and on and on. What are those? They're the result of broken laws. Is there something wrong with the law? No, there's something wrong with the people who are breaking the law. There's something so beautiful, wholesome, pure, and, and pristine, and fabulous about the law that says one husband and one wife for all their lives ought to be totally dedicated and faithful to each other so that that marriage grows deeper and more incredibly beautiful and warmer and closer together with every passing year till 35, 40, 50 years of married life go by and it becomes the most beautiful relationship that is ever created among humankind because that law is so beautiful. The Protestants won't argue with me on that one, will they? Most Protestants are pretty much conservative. They're for mom and apple pie, country and flag. Most Protestants applaud it all in ours. They're conservative people and they would agree that keeping the laws of the land is incumbent upon all of us. They like the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. They like the laws of the land. It's just that when it comes to the Sabbath, they've got to have all these technical, biblical arguments about why they ought to come and go to church tomorrow instead of today, the only day of the week that Almighty God made holy. Well, I hope that going through some of these fundamental scriptures on the Old and the New Covenant with perhaps a little bit of a different approach, it's given you a little more ammunition and a little more biblical understanding that the next time somebody brings up that old argument, oh, but that's Old Testament, it's all done away, you know exactly which scripture to turn to first.